Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Um, One of the things about uh, what we do here at Edgewood is that uh, um, I don't sit up during the week and start thinking of a bunch of sermons I can do, right? We preach through the scriptures. And so right now we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. And uh, 1 Corinthians is uh, drawing to a a changing point. So chapter 4 kind of ends a thought and it jumps into something else. So that's actually right where we're at today. Now, one of the side effects of preaching through the scriptures is that uh, you uh, don't, I'm not picking the topics, right? So you just, sometimes, you know, when I start a passage of scripture, I start a book of the Bible, I never know exactly where it's going to take me. Even times where I've read through it a hundred times, I come back and I go, man, I don't know where this is going. I'm surprised sometimes about where it's gone. Well, this morning, um, I wasn't surprised because I knew this chapter was in here. I knew it was going to show up. But for it to, I think, have its full effect and for the understanding of this passage to really come alive, I'm going to ask you to enter into a story, okay? So I wrote a little bit of a story. I'm going to read it to you this morning. Now, this story was not just random. This is based on what I believe digs right into the possibility of what was happening in Corinth during this time period. So I've uh, pulled up some names, so I'm going to ask you to begin to transport yourselves back to ancient Greece, the city of Corinth, okay? It's near the time of Paul's arrival, but just before he makes it there, okay? So we're, we're talking about Corinth just before Paul's made it here. If you were here with us through Acts, you may remember when Paul made it to Corinth, um, For the sake of our story, I was going to say the names have been changed to protect the innocent, but it's not really about innocence here. Uh, But I did find some names, some ancient Greek names, and so that's what I'm going to use. And I try to pick names that we weren't familiar with right from scriptures, but other Greek names. So the first person I'd like to introduce you to is Phaedra. Phaedra, I'll put her name up there for you. Phaedra. Phaedra is a girl's name. It means, uh, in Greek, it means bright. Okay. Phaedra is young, about 14 years old. She comes from a wealthy family, but one that is just on the edge of wealth. There isn't really a middle class in this time period. You were either wealthy or you weren't. Her father produces fabrics. He isn't a seller of purple like the famous Lydia. If you know Acts, you may know who that is. He's dabbled in that, but he just can't get the same quality of purple that Lydia makes. There's another man in Corinth that will fit into our story. His name is Diogenes. Diogenes, this name means born of Zeus or born of the gods. Diogenes is extremely wealthy and quite prominent in the city. He's a trader and he owns several ships. Now, Phaedra's father has worked out a deal with Diogenes. At the age of 14, young, but not too young for this culture. At the age of 14, Phaedra is to be married off to Diogenes, even though Diogenes is nearly 30 years older than Phaedra. This, of course, is appalling to us, but not uncommon in that culture. 
The purpose of this arranged marriage is to seal a deal between Diogenes and Phaedra's father. He's going to get priority shipping at a higher profit. There's also a higher profit margin for Diogenes because this fabric won't be purchased from another location to be shipped. It's coming from his neighbor. Phaedra's father is already looking to hire a few more of the freedmen and freedwomen of the city to work for him in this fabric production. Diogenes has already had more than one wife. His first wife was supposedly staying at his estate near the coasts, just not that far from Ephesus. There were questions as to whether or not she was actually there. Some simply thought that he had grown tired of her and sent her off there. Some even questioned whether or not she was even still alive. But the prominence of Diogenes scared most away from touching the subject. His first wife had borne him one son before she had been sent away to the estate. His name, Alessandro. And that's our next person in this story. Alessandro. This Greek name means mankind's protector. Now, Diogenes' second wife had died during childbirth, but that marriage had sealed the deal for a discounted price on boat construction for three new trade ships for Diogenes. His third wife was still around, highly prominent as well in the city, but rarely seen with Diogenes. Even though Diogenes was always on his best behavior in public as a prominent citizen of Corinth, he had a reputation for being a violent and frequently drunk master to all those under him, including his wives. They say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but in the case of Alessandro, this was far from the truth. Alessandro was kind and generous, always with a smile on his face. Alessandro had actually grown up with Phaedra. They were practically neighbors and practically the same age. And it's been countless hours as young children playing together. As Phaedra had drawn closer to the age where many of her friends and her older sister had been married, she had allowed herself to hope just a little when she saw that her father had been invited to Alessandro's father's house. Though they were both young, she was hoping to be married someday to someone like Alessandro. She could still remember how her heart had sunk to the depths when her father came home with the news. She would be wed, not to Alessandro in the future, but to Diogenes almost immediately. She dared not show her disappointment. She knew what this would mean to her father's business and prominence in the city. Though her father's face beamed, she felt as if she had received a death sentence. For her father's sake, she attempted to live up to the meaning of her name, Bright. But that light had dimmed significantly, and after ten years of this marriage, had almost been quenched, if it's a marriage that you would want to call it. The one bright spot in her life was the continued friendship with Alessandro. Each week, as he would come from his own living space to do business with the family shipping trade, she would make sure that the house was in order and there weren't any other responsibilities that would need attending to, just so she could be near him and talk to him. She loved him. 
But it was illegal under Roman law for something like this to happen, and it was. Even if she could somehow get a legal divorce from Diogenes, this sort of behavior was frowned upon. Even the thought of the shame that would bring to Diogenes stirred fear in her heart. Alessandro had recently started meeting with a group of people who had left the Roman gods of the city and had become followers of the way. Or as some had started calling them, Christians. Alessandro's involvement with this community of believers in this Jesus increased his distaste for his father's business dealings and behavior, as you can imagine. He became more enraged, and what he felt truly was a righteous anger at the treatment he had seen so many of the servants endure, but especially the treatment he'd grown up watching Phaedra endure. The violent acts, the beatings, the servants had experienced at the hand of Diogenes paled in comparison to the treatment Phaedra had experienced. Diogenes had no problem forcing this 14-year-old girl into his bedroom, forcing himself onto her over the years whenever he felt like it. And any hint at reluctance would result, as Alessandro knew, with the clear signs of physical abuse that next morning. The bruises, welts, cuts and scrapes that were on the visible parts of Phaedra were horrifying. After one particularly violent episode from his father, Alessandro, feeling like that he was living up to his name, mankind's protector, had taken Phaedra from his father's home and brought her to his own. They were not officially married yet, and the divorce had not been finalized, but they were already living as husband and wife, and they were very much, as they may have said, as odd as it would have been for this time period, in love. Alessandro had continued to be involved in this new community of believers, and his prominence had arisen. He was one of the most generous benefactors of the community, and he had put all of his influence behind the group that supported the teachings of Apollos. What an amazing speaker. He'd heard Paul, but Apollos' teachings on the love of Christ had swayed his heart and encouraged him to share these truths with Phaedra. He wanted her to know. She hadn't visited their assemblies yet, but was fully intending on doing this in the next few weeks. This brings us to the current situation when Paul's letter sent from Ephesus arrives in Corinth. Now, I don't want you to forget Alessandro and Phaedra. I would like you to put them on the back shelf for a moment. A real quick reminder, we'll, uh, a real quick reminder from where we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The very end of the chapter, it says this, Paul writing, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. Now we find out not the talk of these arrogant people. Remember, there had been divisions, some under this group, some under this group. Not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. We spoke on this last week. And he ends chapter 4 by saying, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? And I mentioned last week, that seems odd, doesn't it? Rod. And don't you even feel your, like, a step back feeling? Rod? 
doesn't sound very churchy. Should I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? Now let's bring Alessandra and Phaedra back to the forefront of our minds. And listen to how chapter 5 begins. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, illegal, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. I know that they've had issues with the lack of unity, but this, maybe without the context that I led up to this, you would have read this completely differently. Paul goes on, he says this. You have the other clicker. Oh, there we go. It was just lagging. He says this, and are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now the reality is, like I mentioned a moment ago, this was against Roman law, but even with Roman law, this guy, though he could have been thrown into jail by the community, not the Christians, it had been overlooked, which tells you that there is a couple of things at play. One, prominence, importance of this man. But also the Romans were known to overlook even their own laws when it could easily be rationalized. It made sense. If they could argue within their own minds for the good that it brought about. Yeah, maybe this is the law, but... What about this? So the situation I've described, and Paul says this, are you arrogant? And I think that possibly that would make sense if you think about it in context of this possible story that could have gone along with this. Why would they have been arrogant about something unless they thought maybe, look at the good that we're attempting to do? But Paul looks at it and says, ought you not rather to mourn. You ought to be behaving like there's a funeral going on. And then he says these harsh, harsh words that we feel are harsh unless you understand the true nature of love. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. He goes on to say, and we're going to find out He's actually written to them before about this particular event. We're going to see that in just a moment. But just so you don't think Paul is stepping back and removed, he says this. He says, for though absent in body, he's in Ephesus, I am present in my spirit, my heart's with you. Right? I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced, made a a decision, used discernment to pronounce what is right on the one who, who did such a thing. Paul's already decided, but now they, the church, need to follow through. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. 
You are to deliver this man. Are you reading ahead? These are hard things to say, are they not? Don't be confused and think that Paul was sitting there with a happy smile on his face writing these words. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But that what? His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Charles Erdman, speaking on this, said, Most important of all is to observe that the suffering, whatever its nature or source, was intended to lead to repentance. So that it must ever be remembered that the supreme aim of all church discipline is the reformation of the offender. That's the goal, that's the hope. Remember a moment ago when I said, understand the true nature of love? I want you to hear a few passages of Scripture that might be pertinent to understanding how this could make sense. Jesus, loving, kind Jesus, once said in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? What does Jesus say? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or how about James, who writes, What good is it? What good does it do, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, the actions that follow through from real faith? Can that faith, James says, and it's a rhetorical question because the answer is no, can that faith, a faith that says, Oh, yes, I believe, but then there's no evidence of it? See, this is the important thing, and this is what Jesus was talking about as well. See, I can't come up here and say, hey, do you want to see if I have faith? And this is exactly what James talks about. I say, you want to see if I have faith? I can't go like this and go, let me rip open my chest, you know, and there's my heart, and you can see right there a little bubble floating, and you go, oh, that's genuine faith. I can't do that, can I? Even if you opened me up, could you see it? You can't. So how do you know if you have faith? In fact, that passage I just mentioned a moment ago with Jesus, he says, there will be many people who come and stand before me on that final day. And I picture them there, though it wouldn't be this way, but when I read that passage, I think of it. Bags packed, right? Standing in line. It's not like this at all, obviously, but St. Peter's Gate right there, ready to go in. And Jesus standing there says, I don't know you. I never have. See, the scary thing about that verse is that there are people who are genuinely shocked. Read it, Matthew chapter 7. Read it yourself. Scariest verses in the Bible, I think. People who are genuinely shocked because they say, What? But didn't, but we, but didn't we? And Jesus says, Depart from me. I never knew you. It's a human reality that you can absolutely fool yourself. What a scary reality it is. 
And so this is why James speaks to this. What good does it do if you say, if you say it? See, I could get up here and I could go, I am the professor of Hebrew studies at the University of Illinois. I could say, does that make it true? It's not true, by the way, for those of you that know me. I'm not a professor of anything. Um, I, I could get up here and say, I am Napoleon. <laughs> does that make it true? You could probably find in an insane asylum, I don't even know if we call them that anymore, uh, somewhere, somebody that might actually believe something like that, and they could believe it. You could hook it up to a lie detector. Are you Napoleon? Yes, I am. <laughs> How are you still here? It's a long story. Yeah, it, you could, you could do, they, they might believe it. Does it, make that, does it make it true? No. So how do you know? How do you know if you have faith? How do you know that you haven't fooled yourself into thinking that you're fine? How do you know that you're not going to be one of those people on the last day that's like, I, I've been waiting to go to heaven, and you get there and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. How do you know that that's not going to happen? How about John? I've mentioned two people already. John says this. I don't know why my clicker is having so many issues. John says this, by this, this is 1 John, and I love this. This is the only book of the Bible that says this is how you can know. and uses that word, know. See, if you're ever going, above what I want to know, 1 John, only book of the Bible that says this is how you can know. A lot of places talk about genuine salvation, what it looks like, but this is the only book of the Bible that says this is how you can know it. Listen to what he says. I mean, this is just one. I, there are several examples in 1 John. This is just one. By this we know, there it is, that we have come to know him. If what? We keep his commandments. Whoever says, and I just love how John is just so practical. It just, it just makes sense. He says, whoever says, well, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Or as Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 recently said, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So I want to give you, because this week I want to talk about the purpose I was going to try to do this all in one week, but I found out very quickly um, there's no way I can cram it all in here. So I want to talk about this week the purpose of what we call church discipline. And you see it already displayed in Paul. And I'm going to put up there in one word. Restoration. Restoration. See, if you understand the reality of the, just the truth that people can sit there and think, man, I think I'm fine. I believe it. I'm fine. But not be. Then if you love them, you start to say, you keep saying those words, but I don't think they mean what you say that they mean. <laughs> right? You're saying you love God, but, but I'm, I'm looking at the fruit on the tree and there's, there's something off here. Something's not adding up. If I saw my son getting ready to head back to college, 
And I said, hey, have you checked your car? Is it fine? He said, yes. And he was getting in the seat and putting in the key. And he's like, I'm fine. I looked over at his car and I saw underneath of it uh, the brake cables all hanging loose. The brake fluid has been cut. It's all dribbled out. And I say, are you sure it's okay? And he looks at me and goes, Dad, I'm fine. What kind of father would I be if I didn't at some point say, son, and grab his face <laughs> and bring it down to the bottom? Of it. Look under the car. It's not fine. This looks really bad. Would I have done that to him out of hatred? No. Would I have done that to him out of love? Absolutely. The goal with church discipline, the goal with this guy, the goal with who I've fictionally named Alessandro is restoration. Alessandro has made some steps. He's obviously part of this church to some degree. But he's doing something that is like a flashing sign that says something's off. And Paul, in his goal for restoration, says that you need to take this man and hand him over to Satan. For the destruction of all that is in him that is fleshly, so that the end result in the destruction of the flesh, not physically dying, I don't believe, though, though there could be physical ailments involved. We don't know. It's left very open. But whatever this process is, this handing over to Satan, the goal that Paul hopes is that it's going to destroy the flesh so that his soul, his spirit, might be saved. Because Alessandro has looked and he's seen and he said, you know what? I know what God says. But Phaedra, but me. It's really interesting, uh, before I continue on, this whole passage mirrors, and we're going to see this very clearly in a moment, mirrors something from Leviticus. There's this passage in Leviticus that is called the Holiness Code. And guess what the very first thing in this Holiness Code says not to do? If you go back to Leviticus, and I, I forgot to write the chapter down, if you go back to Leviticus, it says, a man should not be with his father's wife. It's not talking about his physical mother, right? That's not what it's talking about. I think quite possibly a situation like what I've described to you. This ought not to be. And Paul's goal, as Paul, we look back to Paul for what is right and wrong that he's written down according to God's spirit working in him and, and right pinning the scriptures. Paul is referencing back hundreds of years before himself to Leviticus. There's this holiness code that still stands, Paul says. He goes on to say this. He says, your boasting is not good. 
So he brings about, and he's going to shift gears, not just for this man's restoration, but there's something else at play. He says, you're boasting. He already called him arrogant, but now he says the church. See, his focus is less about this guy and what he's doing and more about how the church responds to it. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you know anything about leaven, leaven was actually not yeast. Leaven was actually, uh, it's not the same thing as yeast exactly. It was actually a bit of fermented dough. You could take some dough that had had some yeast in it, and that was leavened dough. You could take that little bit, and they would always, they're making bread. They'd take one little piece of it out, and they'd set it out to the side. So the next time they'd make bread, they'd take that piece, they'd mix it in with their new dough, and it would leaven the whole thing. You take a little tiny piece of dough, put it in, mix it in, the whole thing rises, right? Not just the part that you put in. A little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. They knew this. The point of this illustration is that tolerating this, what it was, sexual immorality, Paul used the word pornea, a word used to describe any form of immorality that's sexual, Paul said, you allow this, it's like putting a little bit of leaven. It leavens the whole lump. Charles Erdman says this, they should have understood that the true glory of the Christian church consists not in the eloquence and gifts of its great teachers, but in the moral purity and the exemplary lives of its members. You hear what Charles Erdman is saying? You know what makes a church where you can look at him and go, that's a good church. It ought not to be because the pastor's like, man, he's an amazing speaker. That shouldn't be up there. That's not the glory of the church. Oh, their music team is wonderful. That shouldn't be the thing that's right up there. Like, wow, this is the whole thing Paul's fighting against. What's the glory of the church is that it doesn't consist in talk, but in what? Power, efficacy, effectiveness. That they've taken, you've got these people, these regular people who've heard the teachings of Christ and they've taken it and they've applied it to their lives and now they're different. That's the glory of the church. Regular people live in holy lives, not because of them, but because of all that Christ has done for them. Paul continues on with this illustration of the leaven. He says this, cleanse out then, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I don't know if I'd like that. That's what you are, right? You're not the old lump you used to be. You're a new lump. (laughs) It's weird the way this is phrased. He says, as you are as you really are, unleavened. Wait, wait, wait a minute, what did he just say? Clean out the old leaven. So that you can be a new lump because you really, are unlo- you really are unleavened. So clean out the leaven because you're unleavened. In Christ, you have been de- declared holy. Your faith in him, you're not righteous because of anything that you've done. You're righteous purely because of what Christ has accomplished for you. But then what happens? You're holy. So what should you do? Be holy. 
I'm already holy. I'm holy in Christ. Yes, but what should you do? And that, 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 that's what to, ought to happen, right? What happens? You, this, this holiness, because you're a changed person, ought to begin working its way out. See, that's so important because the, if it's true that the Spirit of God has changed you, you're saved, you're a new creation, you ought to be able to tell something's changed. Which goes back to what John says. How do you know? Because if you know him, what do you do? You keep his commandments. See, if you really know who God is, the things that God tells you are not unbearable. Oh, God told me I can't do that. Is that not how we respond sometimes? Stupid. Doesn't he know? No, see, but if you know him in all of his glory, in the goodness of who he is, in all that he's done through Christ and the cross, and then he comes to you and he says, now I want you to do this, you go, Anything, God, for you. Anything, God, for you. Even the things that you don't quite get sometimes, if he comes through and he says, just do, this is how you ought to live. If you know him, absolutely, I'll do. Also, cleanse out the old leaven. You're already a leaven, so cleanse out the leaven. You're, you're an unloving, you're a new creation. Now let's make it look that way in how you live. And then he says this, for Christ, and this is, there's all this connection going back to Leviticus. See, because the Jewish people, what they would do leading up into Passover, they would actually take all the leaven, anything that was leavened in their house, anything that might have a little bit on it, and they would actually take it even down to the, the spoons that they would use to maybe stir the dough or anything, the bowls. They'd take all that stuff that may have even come into contact with anything leavened, and they'd take it all and they'd lock it. Some of them had like a special cabinet, and they'd put it all in there, and they had different utensils that they knew had never even touched it, and that's what they would use to make their bread during the week of Passover. Because God had said, use unleavened bread. And they wanted, if he says, use unleavened bread, we're going to make sure it is not. I mean, because just, just a little bit, I mean, if there was a little piece of dough on this spoon and I stirred it in with this new, man, what's going to happen? A little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. And so because God said, use unleavened bread, we're going to make sure that this bread is absolutely unleavened. Why? Because Christ, even it folds from this Old Testament idea all the way into the New Testament. Christ, who was actually the Passover lamb. That lamb back then was just picturing what would happen. Christ is our true Passover lamb. Has been sacrificed. So that leaven wasn't really about leaven. It was meant to be an illustration. As you enter into God's people with God's kingdom, any little bit of leaven, you keep it all out because a little leaven is going to leaven the whole thing. Paul says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. I think that when we read this, we ought not to think that week or that time period, but your whole life after Christ has entered in ought to be thought of as the festival of the Lamb. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice, and he extends the definition, just so, in case anybody's confused. So just talking about this, listen to what he adds in here. The old leaven, leaven of malice, 
evil intent, right? Evil, but with the unleavened bread of what? Sincerity and truth. So let me give you the second. First one was restoration. The second purpose I believe that Paul is illustrating here is this. Preservation. We have been tasked with the preservation of God's kingdom. Manifested, made, made evident, so you can see it, in what we call a local church. That little bit of leaven, a little bit. I think Paul was concerned that, that if, if you allow this, and as you, if you know anything about teenagers, I'm sorry, my teacher is coming in. I mean, I'm, now, especially the last half of the year, Dean at DHS, I'm going, okay, this is so true. But what happens if you give a little bit? <laughs> right? Yeah, what happens? Teach it. You give a little bit, you, you, you don't address, what happens? <laughs> it, what, isn't that what Paul's saying? A little, a little loving does what? Loving's the whole lump. But I think there's an aversion to all of this, and I want to get into that briefly before I close for today. Next week, I want to get into, and in fact, I hope, I hope so much, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I hope so much that you have like 20 questions going through your mind. Expel him? Hand over to Satan? What? what? I mean, some people go, that's in the Bible? Yeah. Right. I hope you have so many questions. Wednesday night, we're going to take a look at some of them. Next week, I'm going to really get into the, the, how this, the, the practice of it. How does it actually work? Let's get into the nitty-gritty details, because that's where Paul goes next, right? So that's where Paul goes, that's where we go. But I want to focus in on the the purpose this week, right? So restoration we see. Paul says, do this so that his soul may be saved. He's concerned about this guy. But I think he's also concerned about this church. This church is right on the edge. And all these unity things that are going on, he's digging down and he's saying, man, there's just a little bit of leaven. He's going to love in the whole lump. And I think Paul's concerned. I think he's concerned the way a father is with his children about preserving the holiness of God's people. But there's still an aversion. I think there's a cultural aversion for us with this word, discipline. Anybody in here go, I love discipline. Anybody? I don't see it. I saw a couple like, yeah, you like discipline? You like being disciplined? Listen to what Stephen Um says on this topic. He says this. He says, we're comfortable, and I want you to think about this. I, I, sometimes I put quotes up and I go, I don't know if I need it. This one, oh man, I, I read this one. I just, I read it like three times before I said, man, I'm, I gotta put this one up here. We're comfortable with the idea of self-discipline. Bringing ourselves into line with a certain standard in order to reach a long-term goal, like weight loss, eating healthily, even if we're not very good at it, right? We like the idea of it, at least, don't we? Man, in fact, we kind of admire it in people, don't we? Man, that, that person is so self-disciplined. Man, that's awesome. Wish I could be that way. See, there's, there's an aspect of it, right? Um, eating health, or earning an additional degree. We see somebody that's gone on in their schooling, right? We're like, man, I, I have respect for that. We even refer to different branches of knowledge uh, or fields of study as disciplines. That's what they call it sometimes. Because we understand that it takes sustained focus, 
hard work and self-discipline to grasp them. However, we are uncomfortable with the idea of being disciplined by an external force. Someone or something outside ourselves, and the reason for this, I think this is it. I think Stephen Hume nailed on something right here. The reason for this is rampant, rampant individualism. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. Right? That's what we say, isn't it? I'm gonna do what I want. I gotta be me. I can't be anybody else. Rampant individualism. I mean, even the thought of somebody else coming in and saying, uh, you ought not to do that. I found that true with kids. Have you? <laughs> Don't do it. I, I thought about if I would have thought about it soon enough, I thought about I should have got one of those red buttons. I said, Don't touch the red button. Because what happens when you say, Don't touch the red button? You want to touch the red button? How about if you say, if You touch the red button, I'm going to do this. You just try, and then you really want to touch the red button. I think he's right. Rampant individualism. Now, Stephen Hume then quotes somebody else, somebody named Jonathan Lehman. He says, Jonathan Lehman says, so I'm quoting, Stephen Hume is quoting Jonathan Lehman. He says, for the average person in Western culture today, that's us, right? Uh, for, for us, every attachment is negotiable. We're all free agents. And every relationship and life station is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled. Whether we're dealing with the prince, the parents, the spouse, the salesman, the boss, the ballot box, the courtroom judge, or of course, the local church. You see what he's saying here? We live in a society where everything is negotiable. I'm a free agent. I'm all in until you go against what I think I ought to do. Then I'm out. And I'll find another place where I can be all in with my new set of standards. I am principally obligated to myself that's what Stephen Um is quoting Jonathan Lehman says. This is what may be the problem with this rampant individualism. We think I am principally obligated to myself in maximizing my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I retain the power to veto everything. This is going to bring me to put up one more word for you today. The first two words I put up there were restoration and preservation. And those are the two words that I used to say, this is, I think, the purpose of church discipline. But this last we're going to put up is, is the word that I think is necessary for this to work. Okay? For this to work. See, we, we, maybe you hear that and you go, that's good. But if you were Alessandro, would you not have thought in your head, I, I mean, what's his name mean? Do you remember what does his name mean? Mankind's what? Protector. 
Could, can you not in that situation feel like Alessandro might have thought, but I've done something good. I've rescued Phaedra from this horrible, horrible individual and this horrible, horrible situation. Can you not see that what Paul still says about that situation is what? He, he called it something, didn't he? He didn't call it rescue. Now, understand, and this is where I see all those questions start to pop up. Am I saying that that situation was okay? No. But what I am saying is this. The way they handled it went against God's ways. It was therefore immoral, and it was sin, and it showed something was lacking in Alessandro, if that was his name, in his heart. And it's the word I'm getting ready to put up there. I'm trying to build your suspense for it. It's a tough word. You're not going to like it. As soon as I put it up there, you're going to go, oh, I don't like that word. But it's an important word for this to work. See, because I think part of having this work, and you see this displayed, and this is one of the things I want to talk about Wednesday night. You see this displayed. This is one of the strongest passages that I could ever go to to say membership is important in a church. Because how in the world could they have done this if people hadn't said, we're part of this group? Paul said, when you, are, when you, and they knew who they were, are assembled together, how would you know if you're all assembled together unless they had committed themselves to this particular group? Some people say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about church membership. I'm telling you, it doesn't have to because, man, you can't read it without going. It's important for you to associate and identify with a group of believers that are committed to doing what God wants. And finding the truth in the scriptures, that's important. And being dedicated to that, important. You ready for the word? For this to work, you need this. For some, this is a bad word. Some, when we say this word, we can be talking in our normal voices, but then when we get to this word, we say it in a whisper. But well, you might need to. You know, I think one of the important things is for some submission. Say what? To who? Ultimately, to who? God. This is about us as a people saying, we're, we're going to, the word submit, sub, right? Submarine, right? Bring ourselves under Authority. And the authority is who? God. So we as a church put ourselves under the authority of God as a group. We submit. We submit. And I want to say those two purposes are so, so very important. Because you, me, everybody in this room, we are fallible human beings that desperately need other fallible human beings under the authority of God, submitting to Him. Because if not, in rampant individualism, you could very, very easily be one of those people that stands before those gates and say, I'm ready. And Jesus is going to look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
What is God's check and balance system that he has put in place to help us, if I may use the word, help, and I notice I said us, so please don't be offended, help us idiots. What, what, is the check, what is the system God has put into place to help us idiots? Church. Requirement to get in, be a sinner. Submitting to God's authority. Faith in him. And then we come together, and when we see one, we're watching each other. And I invite this, please. You see me starting to stray, and this is what we get into next week. Matthew 18 is, lays out the steps. Jesus himself lays out these steps very clearly, how you ought to address. And we'll get into that. But you see me starting to stray, there's a process that God has given us to say, hey, I'm going to confront you. I'll give you a hint, right? That's where it starts, person to person. What you're doing says something about your faith. That's what we're saying. Because when you don't obey God, what are you saying? I don't trust him. When you don't obey God, you're saying, I don't, I don't trust him to tell me what to do. I trust him to save me, but I don't trust him to tell me what to do. That's ridiculous. I trust him. And what you're doing. And so as loving brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to each other and we say, the, the, the direction you're going, and I'm concerned, I love you. And I see you headed a way that, that has me concerned. The end path, some might say, is church discipline. But a true follower of Christ, their hope is that the end is not that moment when you hand over to Satan for the destruction of flesh, but that moment when they come back and they say, God destroyed in me my flesh. I was loving myself. Thank you for handing me over. If I would have been left to myself, I never would have realized what a sinner I was. Thanks be to God. Flesh, it's still being destroyed. There's still, I'm getting out the leaven still. But I recognize now I'm unleavened. I'm holy in his eyes. And if it wouldn't have been for those difficult, difficult things, that handing over to Satan, I never would have realized I would have missed it entirely. True Christian, the end is not when you say, we're going to have to discipline, but the end result is what we hope for God to then do and bring about in the end process so that one day when we're entering into heaven, I'll look out. And I'll see you. And I'll say, we made it. That's going to be awesome, isn't it? We made it. We made it. Let's enter into his glory. We made it. We kept each other accountable. We, we saw each other. When one of us fell down, the other one, come on, let's go. 